Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. This is the conversation that we love to have about people who are making a difference in the world, particularly around food and passion and issues related to hunger, food insecurity, and poverty. On this very special episode of Add Passion and Stir, we're going to talk about challenges and solutions. We look back into our 2023 episodes and we found three incredibly compelling stories about equity. We will hear from Bonton Farm CEO, Darren Babcock. We as a society had designed entire neighborhoods like Bonton to have none of the resources that human beings need to flourish. Investigative journalist, Aldor Collier. And for her to have to ride the bus, three buses to get to places that were stored to have, you know, the fresh foods and things like that that they need, which is shocking. And Dr. Michael McAfee, the president and CEO of PolicyLink. We shouldn't be undercutting that investment by having you know, lead leaching through the pipes in the water, as an example that we see in far too many cities, or lead in the paint in the homes because they're old and deteriorating. Before Darren Babcock could help the impoverished people of the Bonton neighborhood in Dallas, Texas, he first had to help himself. Well, March of 1998, my first wife was diagnosed with cancer. And then two years to the date after that, she passed away. And that combined with everything else that I had experienced in my life tipped me over. Um, I had I had held as much internally as I had the strength and ability to endure and it spilled out. And I just became a very angry, um, violent and disconnected person that ultimately led me into trouble. Um, I ran into some folks and started uh, using drugs and alcohol to self-medicate through that time and wound up um, on the verge of, of death one way or another. But Darren was fortunate in that he had a support system of friends and family who intervened and helped him in recovery. Even though I had given up on things, I had family and friends that cared about me, that still believed in me, and that would not let me go. And I'm here today as a result of that. And I, I just think that, at least for me, when you when you go through something like that, there's this reevaluation of life that happens when you come out the other side. Darren came to realize that by virtue of the zip code where he was born, he was blessed with an abundance of opportunities and resources. And at the same time, he came to understand other communities like the Bonton neighborhood in Dallas, Texas, do not have access to the same resources and opportunities that he did. We created an educational system based on property taxes so that neighborhoods with less tax revenue, had less opportunity for the best, uh, the best equipment and, and teachers and facilities. Um, we couldn't participate in your healthcare or hospital system um, because those places tend to be poor. Grocery stores would likely not to be developed. And so all of the things that we take, I think, take for granted that we that we call part of the community, the smaller community that we access for the goods and services resources that we all use to build our lives around. In 2023, most communities like Bonton still do not have those basic services. And, and the bad news is, is yes, we designed that and we have to own up to it. But the good news is if that it is by design, we can redesign our future and it doesn't have to stay that way. In a little bit, we'll hear how Darren transformed not only his life, but also the lives of the people he now calls his neighbors. About 1,000 miles north of Darren and Bonton is another neighborhood called Metcalf Park in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And despite the geographic distance, they're very close to each other 
in many disturbing ways. Aldor Collier has been a highly successful journalist for decades. During that time, he's covered major events like the Olympic Games and the Republican and Democratic National Conventions. But perhaps the most personally impactful story to him was the one he recently wrote regarding Metcalf Park. Aldor wrote, living in this northwestern Milwaukee neighborhood is bad for your health. I asked him about the people who live there. The immediate area had like roughly about 10,000. Then you get beyond that, it's like, a, you know, like 20, 30, 40. Yeah, there are no hospitals nearby. They have to make sure, you know, they try to stay healthy because it's going to take them a long time. And of course, trying to stay healthy in a food desert is a big challenge. They still can't get these chains to come in. I've seen some upper class black neighborhoods had no real grocery stores near them either. But you can't buy food if you can't get to a job. Milwaukee had a lot of factory jobs in the 50s and 60s, and those are gone. Jobs don't really exist in big numbers there. And what they have told me, they have to ride, sometimes, a lot of them still don't have cars, have to ride three or four buses to get to a job. And that's very tough. In Dallas and in Milwaukee, there's a common thread, a thread that ties together far too many of the cities, towns, and communities throughout our country. It's a lack of equity. Michael McAfee, the president and CEO of PolicyLink, defines equity as the just and fair inclusion into a society in which all can participate, prosper, and reach their full potential. The sins of race-based policy still haunt us. And And unless you're deeply steeped in the work, you don't recognize that that's the problem. You know, folks don't in, in San Francisco and Oakland today don't recognize, wow, in the 70s, we set in motion policy that would destroy our public education infrastructure as the best option. And now future generations of our kids are going to struggle as a result of that. And that's what's happening. And when I talk about that hundred million now, 40 million of that is white. That is not a problem of people just being shiftless and lazy. When one in three people are economically insecure in your nation, that is a design challenge. And that is in many ways a result of race-based policy that has now jumped host what may have been designed just to deal with me no longer is contained with just dealing with me. It infects and harms everyone. As daunting as the challenges may be, Darren Babcock, Aldor Collier, Michael McAfee, in their individual ways, they all found reasons for hope and solutions to these challenges that are deeply imprinted into our nation's DNA. I spoke with Darren Babcock about his becoming a member of the Bonton community. I was told that Bonton was this inner city community that was rife with crime and broken people and broken dreams. And it was this dangerous, dark place. And some of that's true in the regard of people that find their backs up against the wall that are hopeless do desperate things. The thing I think I missed is that the people were beautiful. It was the place. It was the the fact that we as a society had designed entire neighborhoods like Bonton to have none of the resources that human beings need to flourish. And then when somehow they can't make the same thing of their lives that we did, we build prisons to incarcerate them and shelters to house them and programs to take care of them as if they're not capable of taking care of themselves. And this is where I had such great conflict of coming in so such proximity with people and walking not in their shoes, but alongside them on their life journey that you recognize that everybody in my community is capable of exceedingly more than I am. They just grew up, happened to be born into a place that had very little to offer them. 
and their their human potential got squashed in the process. Before we get into how Bonton Farm works, uh, I'd like you to say a little bit about the conditions in the the, the Bonton neighborhood of Dallas. I know that uh, when I was there, we learned that you know something like only half the kids are going to high school, that half the young men end up incarcerated before they're 25, or at least that's the way it was uh, at one point, uh, and that it's geographically so separated from the rest of Dallas. So, uh, you know, I'm going to ask you, Darren, to give us some of the kind of the, the, the color and character of the neighborhood so we can, you know, paint a picture of it. Uh, before I got introduced to Bonton, I would have judged those outcomes and attributed them to the people and not the system that created it. And so it's my experience after living there 12 years and now calling the people uh, that live in Bonton family and friends and my neighbors that that I just think it's really important to it's really important to call that out uh, before we talk about the fact that there's 3,800 zip codes in the state of Texas, and uh, and we in Bonton incarcerate the highest percentage of people of any zip code in the state. Uh, we graduate about we haven't graduated more than 54 percent of our kids from high school in over 40 years, and the only reason we know that's because that's when they started uh, tracking that data. Uh, we have the second highest teen birth rate. We have the highest infant mortality rate in the county that we're in uh, from health out as far as health outcomes, which will directly tie back when we start talking about food and food security and wellness and hunger. Um, we suffer from more than double the rate of cancer, stroke, heart disease, diabetes and childhood obesity than the county we're in. And men in our zip code will live 11.7 years less than the average lifespan of a man in the county that we're in. Darren, we're in a little bit of a bubble. Um, you're a little bit more in, in the real world. Uh, but one of the things that strikes me is, you know, I, I feel like if any 20, if I could have a conversation with any one of 20 neighbors of mine and say, do you realize that um, some of these conditions exist because that's the way these things were designed. You know, this is the groundwater that's shaping this. I think they would be stunned uh, and shocked. And I say it because I feel like we have so much work to do to help people understand the systemic nature of this. And it feels like we're so far from uh, a kind of a common or a shared understanding of that. Um, does that feel that way to you, Darren? Uh, do you feel like you're pushing a rock up the hill and trying to get people to understand this? Um, or are we getting closer than I think? I think it's both. Um, and I'm not dodging your question. I think that we just have the wrong narrative. So that can feel overwhelming, except that we also can say that we can change that narrative. And as long as we have the prevailing narrative that people are the problem and we keep casting blame and pointing fingers at one another, and it goes both ways, um, then we're going to remain stuck. But if we could come to terms that we're all human beings and that we're all born with the same, generally the same uh, human beings, you know, need the, generally the same things to thrive and flourish. And when those things are present, most people will. And when they're not, most people won't. If that narrative could be, could begin to change, then I think more people would start to see the problems for what they are, as opposed to through the lens of a of a of a improper paradigm, and I, I'll just tell you that I think the reason that I can confirm that 
the paradigm that people are the prevailing is the prevailing narrative is the problem because if it if that was the prevailing narrative our response to the social challenges would be to build the world's largest prison industrial complex which we've done it it would be that a disproportionate amount of philanthropy would probably go towards band-aid solutions that took care of people instead of empowering people to care for themselves like homeless shelters and the such and i'm not putting any of that stuff down it's just that if we believed in the capabilities and power of people, we would need a lot less of that because we would see that they had the tools and resources to build their lives. Let's talk about uh, Bonton Farms, what it does, how it's evolved, where it came from, uh, what its future looks like. Jump, just jump in there at any point you, you like, Darren. Well, I think the thing that makes the thing the thing that makes Bonton Farms so special it was built on a really strong foundation, and that is that we weren't an organization. We had no ambition or desire to create an organization. Um, as a white man moving into a predominantly African American and minority um, community, um, I didn't understand the scope of things that we're talking about today. So I couldn't come in with an attitude of I'm here to fix anything because I didn't know, I didn't know what there was to fix. And, and so Bonton Farms being built on the foundation of relationship led to the understanding that if we're going to overcome these things together, we're going to have to collaborate together, form an organization and start to attack the systemic barriers that remain problematic in our way today. So describe a little bit about what go what what actually goes on there. What what do you see when you get to Bonton Farms and what what is being produced? If you talk to the old timers in Bonton, they will tell you that while our neighborhood has always been materially poor, it has traditionally been rich in neighbor in community. The things that really mattered, we had. You'll hear stories about people coming on to hardship and other families taking in families' children as their own to care for them. And so a huge part of our work is focused on restoring the social fabric and bringing families together and churches together and rec centers together and teachers together and the police together and all of these different components that we have been at odds with and start working and fostering communication where we we reconnect those in healthy ways where we collaborate and work with each other. And then the last thing is just taking care of our environment. If we walk out of your door and you don't feel good about the place you live, then I'm likely not to feel good about myself. And so we work together to do things like honoring people for the yard of the month and who, who has the best Christmas or holiday decorations and what can we do to encourage people to make our, our community a place of beauty where we feel better about the place we are because when we feel better about the place we are, we feel better about ourselves and our place in that uh, community. And, and Darren, some of this uh, transpires through the mechanism of what's often been described as one of the largest urban farms in the country. You're actually growing produce. Absolutely. You know, one of the, we think there's seven human essentials that we call them human essentials. There's seven things that systemically are foundational to human flourishing that we don't have. Uh, one of those, one of them's economy, and so the farms help to to build economy. But the second part of it is access to safe, affordable food. And absent our ability to influence a grocery store to come build a store in our neighborhood, we did what we could do that was within our power, and that was to plant our own gardens. When I started, when all the the first group of men that welcomed me into the community just happened to be all men that were desperate because they were coming home from prison and trying not to go back. 
and our friendships formed and they told me their primary barrier was was economic they were they were um, unable to find work based on their background and so i started working with them to build resumes where they understood their own value and in doing so recognized that most of them were too sick to work they were chronically ill i'd never been around chronically ill people like that and so i started asking questions and learned that bonton was a food desert and I couldn't understand that, but long story short, we wound up planting a garden and it wasn't long after that, that we got written a ticket for selling vegetables <laughs> in Dallas. It was illegal against an ordinance to have a, what they called a market garden where you grew food and sold it. And so, um, uh, how the farm got started was it was just an act of defiance to try to remove that barrier. Uh, the newspaper agreed to write a story about it every month for a year to try to take the power away from the city to shut us down. Uh, city wound up giving us an entire city block of land to start an experimental illegal farm on. And that's how we became one of the largest urban farms in the United States. And the farm uh, also supplies the restaurant that I had lunch at. Is that right? That's correct. Yes, we grow our own food and produce it for our community, our family and the restaurant. When you talk about scaling, when you talk about replicating, when you talk about getting Bonton Farms or the, the secret sauce of Bonton Farms into other neighborhoods, what are uh, some of the, the challenges or obstacles or gating factors to do that? Is that is it a matter of, I know money is always a part of it. Is it is it uh, just money? Is it also, is it talent? Is it time? Is it uh, uh, understanding uh, better? Is it, or is it too early uh, to know what that, that secret sauce is? Uh, how would you think about that, Darren? I actually think that it's easier than we think as long as we uh, we kind of follow the idea of, of experimental discovery. Uh, what, what we don't want to do is to go so fast and not learn that we have a fatal flaw where we can mess something up and we lose the trust of the community and people we serve, or the people that invest in us that believe that we we, we are capable of executing our plan with excellence. And so what I love about the partnership that we've formed is we're taking a small approach to create uh, pilots where we have uh, equity, strong equity in the community and with investors. And we're going to we're going to put a transformational solution uh, in the marketplace and we're going to be we're going to observe and we're going to adapt and refine before we try to scale too fast. I think one of the things that that I've seen happen is that we either we either try to force a solution into a market that doesn't fit and it requires an exponential um, uh, reinvestment over time. And eventually, sometimes that investment may drop. And so it falls apart. And so it really wasn't a solution. Um, it was a Band-Aid. And I think the second thing is that we may have really good ideas that we try to scale too fast. And in doing so, um, don't recognize that no idea is going to be perfect coming out of the gate and that um, sometimes we lose the trust of the people we serve by trying to advance things before they're fully refined and ready for the market. Aldor Collier and I spoke of the inspiration he found in a member of the Metcalf Park community who refused to be silenced. One of my good friends from high school, Linda Bowen, has a foundation, and she said that she had worked with the people in Milwaukee. And she mentioned Danelle Cross. And she said, I think she'd be great for this story. She's a dynamic personality. She's had these great, horrific times in her life. But she's doing so much to elevate the community. You know, and that's what, um, and so I contacted them and through Linda. And I was able to um, talk to Danelle, her daughter, her neighbors, um, other people who work with uh, Metcalf Park. 
But what they have started doing is Danelle has, you know, she's such a dynamic person. You know, they have rallied their forces. You know, they got people together. You know, now they're starting to fight because I think they understand now the importance of political power and political involvement. She has this power to galvanize. I think that's what's really making a big difference. And, you know, she doesn't mix her words. You know, she's blind. She can be foul. But I guess sometimes that's what you need to get people, you know, off their butts to do things. And she says, she's, you know, she's still keep, keeping the city council, their feet to the fire. She won't let them off the hook. But she's taking things on. Her, she's getting grants on her own for the neighborhood. And I talked to other neighbors and they said they feel way more empowered now as opposed to sitting around like, woe is me. And I think she's, help, she's helping to instill this um, power and the need to get involved. Like, I'm going to do this myself. I cannot sit around waiting for politicians to do this for me. And so it, it seems to be getting better. It's, it's going to be a slow process. I think Danielle will tell you, you can't wait for city officials, you know, to do it for you. But like Danielle's daughter was saying, yeah, they're fighting so many battles because she said so many of her friends have been killed. You know, she said she can't, doesn't have time to grieve because it keeps happening. You know, the gang violence. And then if you really you saw how Danielle had to move because she was trying to report these uh, crack dealers. And then she, they firebombed, it'll be Molotov cocktails, firebombed her house. But she still did not move very far. She's still very much involved. But even I think she would tell you also that um, employment is the first one. That's the one you have to address first. But food insecurity is big, obviously, because you got to have access to some kind of food and housing. But I think those two will really alleviate themselves once you get uh, job growth going. So that's the big thing, not the economics, I mean, jobs. One of the things that you, you referenced a few moments ago, but we haven't really focused on it yet, was that for many years, this was a vibrant neighborhood, as you describe it. Uh, with working class families and diversity. And then uh, a number of things happened. The city ended up uh, tearing down a lot of homes to make space for a highway that uh, at the end of the day did not get built. And uh, there was displacement of social networks and uh, a toll on local institutions. Is that where, um, when when I look at the headline, which I thought was kind of provocative about structural racism's invisible net, um, is that where structural racism intersects with, with poverty, with those kinds of governmental or societal decisions? Well, I think it's one of the intersections for sure, because, again, you had, um, you know, jobs in you know, factories, not just breweries, you had other factories that go and had, you know, present in Milwaukee as well. And again, like I said, you know, how like big shoe companies all live Boston, you know, fleeing south or overseas. Every, most every city that have had factory jobs in the north lost them. And that happened everywhere, not just, it's not unique to Milwaukee, but I think the difference is they did not try to come up with solutions to replace what was lost. That's been the problem there. And uh, you have people that sort of stuck. They can't change housing uh, patterns because, again, they feel that, you know, some of them have said to me, where are they going to go? You know, they've been redlined out of other, you know, better housing. And that's another national problem. So, just, again, it's not unique to Milwaukee. But I think what they sense is that um, nothing in 2022 had, was being done, you know, to help that, that neighborhood, that the city and county and state just were, didn't, you know, didn't care. And I think that's why it was important for people like Donnell to try to, you know, push this and get something done because you're going to, you know, you'll make city leaders, you know, pay attention to you if you get involved. And she did say that, you know, they will pay attention to us now. You get involved and it will, you make them pay attention to you. But yeah, they just, you know, the problem is 
how do you get these jobs to come back in? I mean, they you know, think tanks, things, whatever. They want things to come in there, but it's a slow process. And that's what they're trying to do. But at least they're paying attention to it now. At least the neighbors are trying to find ways. They're not sitting there doing like, woe is me. They, do, they are not embracing that kind of uh, you know, philosophy, woe is me. They are not anymore. It might have been an acceptance in the past, but I think but because of Danielle Cross, you know, you know, this, this booming voice of hers, people getting off their butts and starting to think about what can I do? Yeah, what can I do? Uh, to me, that's one of the, the powers of media is to elevate voices that too often just don't get heard. You know, so many of our issues, uh, whether they have to do with hunger or poverty, uh, have, have to do with, you know, income and employment and, and uh, all kinds of logistical challenges of how you get food and resources to families who need it. But at the end of the day, uh, the, the, the most powerful way of addressing those is with a voice that gets heard by people who are in a, in a position to make decisions. And I feel like one of the important services of this article was elevating her voice. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I said, now, and I think the fact that uh, she's getting its attention, you're starting to see city leaders, you know, start coming in that neighborhood. You know, those who never paid attention to them before are suddenly forced to pay attention because of uh, the attention it's been getting, you know, outside of Milwaukee. And it's sad that it had to come to that, you know, that outside exposure to get them to do their jobs. But, um, no, she's getting it done. Um, but, you know, they still have lots of problems to deal with there. And, uh, you know, I would just, again, I'm older than her, and I guess I was just as stunned when they said they had to go and get three shopping carts, you know, and then riding a bus with all these packages to get back, you know, and also having to always go and get these sugary drinks because they last. Fruit cocktails, canned peaches, you know, canned apples, canned meat, everything, with all the high sodium. She said, she said now she's aware of all of that, that she wasn't before. And Michael McAfee discussed his answer of deconstructing the barrier of race to address all inequities for all people who are disadvantaged, disenfranchised, and disenchanted with a democracy that works for some, but not all Americans. I learned the importance of building strong, enduring institutions that can do this work at the scale necessary to solve our nation's problems for so many. Um, I learned the power of really not being afraid to manifest love in this work and that love is not a soft concept. It is quite powerful. Um, it is a powerful tool to fight against folks who want a very different America. I don't think institutions deserve to exist simply because they have great brand and had a seminal leader. I think they deserve to exist because they're willing to do the work that the moment requires. And for us, we had put equity on the map with so many others in the equity movement. The question now is what's policy link's second act? And that second act had to be that we were willing to raise our gaze and think that we could be so bold as to change the nature and logic of our governing institutions so that they could work for everyone. That's the frontier of the work. And so it looks like us pursuing things like creating landmark equity legislation that would rival the 65 Civil Rights Act. You know, our legal and regulatory frame can't just be stuck in 65. It has to continue to evolve if we're going to be able to take on the challenges that we need to take on. Now, some would say that's impossible, but that's what the work is. It looks like us starting a $300 million capital campaign. You know, of color led organizations really struggle. And when you look at the philanthropic reports, they show that of color led organizations usually only get one to 5% of the capital. But yet we're asked to do so much to save this nation repeatedly. 
That is unacceptable to me. So we launched a $300 million capital campaign, got the first 50 million at the, the last quarter of last year. But when you look at our peers in D.C., they all have on average $250 million endowments and PolicyLink had none. It's just not acceptable. And we are more impactful as ever. And so love looks like making sure that we pay corporate level wages, not just surviving wages of most nonprofits. It looks like we give folks three weeks off where we close our entire office so that everybody can rest and restore. It looks like we give folks unlimited leave on top of all of that. It looks like we pay 100 percent of our employees health benefits. It looks like if you leave PolicyLink, you're going to leave in a loving way. We're going to be a loving and accountable culture. And if you have to go, we're not just going to throw you out. We're going to transition in a way that honors your humanity and dignity, um, but still transitions nonetheless. The care of the people has to be front and center before we can talk about caring for that hundred million that you hear me describe. And so that's how I work to try to manifest love with my colleagues. There's nothing that I'm describing that I do by myself. But love starts with the way the leader cares for the folks that, that you're on the journey with, that you're privileged to be on a journey on. And then it can move out from there. And then becomes part of the culture. Uh, say a little bit about Promise Neighborhoods, which I know is a big part of your uh, focus before you became CEO. Um, both what happened with Promise Neighborhoods? Where are they today? And uh, what impact have they had? You know, Promise Neighborhoods is, is an exciting culmination of all these stories that I've been telling. You know, Promise Neighborhoods simply is a, 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 says we, we are better than supporting children at one developmental stage of their life. We should hold them and care for them from the time they are conceived to the time that they can compete for a living wage job. And to put that pipeline together for children in places of concentrated poverty is what we were doing. Now, we designed the program, and here it is. We have a wonderful gift. Community leaders had said for many years, we want large sums of money. We want it to be flexible so we can do what we think needs to be done in our communities, and we need it over a significant period of time. So here it is. You get the federal program. You get $30 million over five years, and you have the flexibility pretty much to do what you want. And we're about to lose it because of bad practice. What I mean by bad practice is that you know, you get grant writers to write these proposals and then you try to figure out, spend the first year trying to figure out what you and the partners are actually going to do with this grant if you're lucky enough to get it. Well, we didn't have that time because, you know, the Obama years, everybody was it was a deeply charged political environment like now. So two years in, Senator Klein issues an audit of the program. You know, you know, you don't really audit a program two years in. You're just usually getting set up. There was a lot of politics involved. But what I'm really proud about is that we knew this was the reality that we were in. And our job at the Promise Neighborhoods Institute was to ensure that folks had the technical supports they need to be successful and that we could make this program a permanent federal program because it was not. It was having to be authorized every year. Lo and behold, Senator Klein issues the audit. You know, the government accountability offices really rarely cares about how good you're doing stuff. They're looking for waste, fraud and abuse. Well, they looked at nearly, I think, 40 communities plus. And what they saw was this disciplined results based way. The network was moving from talk to action. They decided not to issue the report publicly, but we did because it was describing the way we think folks should behave. 
I don't think you deserve government money if you're not going to deliver for it. And we were setting up a culture across the country to deliver for the nation's children and families. And so today, Promise Neighborhoods is a permanently authorized program. It has been increased under every administration since Obama. And the reality is, it was Senator Thad Cochran and Senator Mitch McConnell, while not supporting it, didn't destroy it, that allowed us to make sure this program was was permanent. So in many ways, Promise Neighborhoods is a perfect manifestation of the results-based leadership that we want to hold, where we can work with anyone across an an aisle or a political spectrum. We can do deep results-based work, whether it's in Berea, Kentucky, the Mississippi Delta, or some of the cities around this country. And we can provide that pathway out of poverty for children and families. That's what Promise Neighborhoods is. But the bigger story there is how our sector grew up and really learned how to start delivering on the results that are necessary if we're going to be worthy of continual federal investment. What else should we be doing to make sure that Promise Neighborhoods reaches its its full vision, its full potential? Um, we we should continue to advocate with our elected leaders that it, 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 as long as it continues to be a results-based endeavor, that its appropriation should increase to, at the scale of the problem. You know, many times folks think we should not have government involved, but the reality is government is the scaling vehicle to so many of our problems. doesn't mean it's the only vehicle, but it is a significant one. When people talk about evidence-based practice, the white middle class was built off of federal government policy, FHA, the GI Bill. And so, and we saw in the pandemic what happened with the stroke of a pen by President Biden lifting millions of children out of poverty. And so we need to continue to advocate for government expenditure, but government expenditure that is results-based. But in addition to that, we should also be looking in our communities and saying, where where is the design of our cities undercutting government investment? For example, if you've got networks out there doing a lot of early learning work, making sure that they're implementing the best brain science for for kids to be able to develop cognitively so they'll be successful in life. We shouldn't be undercutting that investment by having, you know, lead leaching through the pipes in the water, as an example that we see in far too many cities, or lead in the paint in the homes because they're old and deteriorating. And so in many cases now, what we should be doing, we should be advocating for these programs that are demonstrating results. And we should also be advocating for our elected leaders to remove the structural barriers and laws that are undercutting, whether it's our charitable investments that we make as individuals or whether it's the expenditure of the government dollars. That's what we need to do now. See where things are undercutting the good work that is being done and remove those barriers. So part of this is about creating political will. And I remember when you spoke to the sheriff's strength staff at our all staff convening. And you also made uh, the point that, uh, and we haven't really talked about it uh, yet uh, today, but you made the point that we've got to be talking, if we're going to talk about hunger and poverty, we've got to talk about race. uh, And we've got to talk about it in ways that people understand the connection. Say a little bit about that. Well, you know, it's hard to solve problems if you really don't get to the root causes. And as much as we want to deny it, 
The origin of this origin story of this nation, while beautiful in many ways, was also quite harmful in, in other ways. And we can hold that tension. <laughs> we can hold that tension and we can continue to perfect this democracy. Every generation has is extended that invitation to do that. I am, even though this nation, when it was founded, didn't include me in having that opportunity. And that's okay. And so, so much of what we care about has to do with race that we don't even recognize it today. And it's, it's, a, it's a wicked problem that's going to be waiting for us, whether we deal with it today or 200 years from now. We're going to have to deal with it. We're going to have to deal with it because it, when you hold on to a hierarchy of human value and then you design places, nations around that, you set things in motion that are hiding in plain sight. And I'll give you just one practical example. Out here in the Bay, Everybody's making wonderful salaries, 200,000 plus up. And yet they're complaining they can't make it out here. And they can't make it in Oakland and San Francisco, even with $200,000 year plus salaries, if they have children. Because we diminished the public education product. And why did we diminish the public education product? If you read a book like The Color of Law in the most progressive state in the country, you see how race played a role in designing an educational infrastructure throughout California that was designed to keep white kids from being educated to black kids. So what does that mean today? It means if you live in Oakland or California and you've got a choice to make for your kid, you probably wouldn't choose public education as your first option if you got the resources. And so for all those families who now live in Oakland and San Francisco who had nothing to do with the race based policies of the 70s, when you heard me tell that earlier story about me being taken out of public school because of busing. They now are the beneficiaries of the consequence of that bad policy. They are struggling to make ends meet, even though they're doing very well financially. Because of that decision. And there are decisions like that all across this country where the sins of race based policy still haunt us. And unless you're deeply steeped in the work, you don't recognize that that's the problem. You know, folks don't in, in San Francisco and Oakland today don't recognize. Wow. In the 70s, we set in motion policy that would destroy our public education infrastructure as the best option. And now future generations of our kids are going to struggle as a result of that. And that's what's happening. And when I talk about that hundred million now, 40 million of that is white. That is not a problem of people just being shiftless and lazy. When one in three people are economically insecure in your nation, that is a design challenge. And that is in many ways a result of race-based policy that has now jumped host what may have been designed just to deal with me no longer is contained with just dealing with me. It infects and harms everyone. And so that's the unfinished business that I'm excited that we get to do. And you're right. We live in a messy world with folks who have every right to have all sorts of views that they want to have. And our job is to see their humanity as well and figure out where we can get some work done, as hard as that might be. That is the maturity and the growth that is necessary to fully participate in a democracy that is free. So that is why race is so important. It is the operating system, one of the important operating systems of the nation. And if we don't want that to be an operating system, we've got to continue to be vigilant about how do we replace it. And we're only now getting to a place where we can even openly acknowledge it in, with a broader swath of the nation.
And so that's why it matters, because if we want future generations of our children to be successful, no matter what color of their skin, we better deal with this issue. And the last thing I'll say on this is this. When you look at Ross Chetty's data around mobility, it basically shows us that, you know, it doesn't really matter what color your skin, you know, mobility is dead. The zip code that you're born in is pretty much the zip code that you're going to be in for the rest of your life. We're better than that as a nation. And so to me, while others would like for us to stop talking about these things, I think it's important for us to talk about them and do the work to see them and to remove the barriers. We don't have to harp on it every day. We just need to be about the work of creating something that is just and fair. That, to me, is the liberatory work that is worthy of leaders existing today and institutions existing today. In our work at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign, we know that over 13 million children in the United States alone face the challenge of having enough food to eat. That's a direct result of 37 million people in America living in poverty. It's easy to get discouraged. It's far simpler to become overwhelmed by the enormity of the problem. Throw your hands up in despair and just give up. But individuals like Darren Babcock, Aldor Collier, and Michael McAfee, and there are tens of thousands more people like them, they're showing us that each and every one of us has the capacity to make a difference, to share our strength, and to ensure that in our country of tremendous wealth and expansive opportunity, that one day soon, No Kid Hungry becomes a reality.